Hello and welcome to episode number 65 of the Agro-Innovations podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been prepared for release onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on September 28th, 2009. For this episode of the Agro-Innovations podcast, we are joined by Andre Hosni of the Zambian Soap Company. The Zambian Soap Company produces and markets organic fair trade soaps in the country of Zambia as a means of providing meaningful employment to people in vulnerable African communities. Andre, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about Zambia. Um, I don't know much about Africa or, well, especially Zambia. I've not been there. Uh, So I, I think myself and my listeners would like to know a little bit more just about the country in general. Yeah, Zambia is in southern central Africa, and it borders seven countries. It's south of Congo, uh, north of Zimbabwe and Botswana. It's probably best known for Victoria Falls, which is just an incredible geologic feature where these where this huge river, the Zambezi River, falls into a canyon, into, um, which is the very south end of the African Rift Valley. And it's an incredibly beautiful uh, feature. But most of the country is lightly forested with with a seasonal dry forest called Mayombo Forest. There's some other forest types. And uh, it's a country that's got a very low population density. It has about 10 million people. And it's about the size of the state of Texas. So it's a a large um, country. And it's uh, the amazing thing is, with such a low population density, it's also one of the most urbanized countries in Africa. So there's very uh, the the small population that there is are are concentrated in a number of towns and cities, and there's large areas of very sparsely populated land. But it's not an arid country. It has a pretty healthy rainfall, a consistent rainfall. And so it's a, it's a place that's ideal for agriculture of a lot of different types. Zambia is really dependent economically on the copper mining industry, extractive industries. And that has been a real roller coaster lately. And uh, so most Zambians have subsistence level agriculture as a part of their um, mix of their income. Uh, but there's very little large-scale agriculture at all. So it's it's in some many ways an ideal place to work uh, as far as sustainable agriculture is concerned. What um, is what is the colonial history of Zambia? Zambia was part of the of northern. Well, Zambia was northern Rhodesia. Southern Rhodesia was Zimbabwe, and uh, Zambia, northern Rhodesia, was really sort of the backwater, the forgotten kid brother to Zimbabwe, southern Rhodesia. Southern Rhodesia had all the mineral wealth, um, had you know a lot more economic activity and expansion going in there, and, and thus has a lot higher history of exploitation and um, uh, just a, a really battered past. And I think in many ways that's a large part of the cause of, of what's going on in Zimbabwe today. But Zambia was spared a lot of that because it didn't really have as much uh, mineral wealth, uh, and it was so far from the coasts, so remote, that it was harder to exploit that wealth. So Zambia 
really was passed over by most of the sort of big business type of exploitation that a lot of the continent uh, received. And so in many ways, that's been a blessing to Zambia. Um, it's also, you know, been a curse because the economic development has been much lower. Um, so Zambia pretty much was left to the missionaries, and it was a uh, a place where David Livingston, you've heard, the, you know, the phrase Dr. Livingston, I presume, he spent most of his uh, of his life and ministry in Zambia and uh so they have a they have a history of a lot less conflict over colonial issues than than many other countries in the same region and so that's been a blessing and in many ways there's there's a lot of goodwill to to outsiders in Zambia that you don't find in in other sub-saharan african countries so linguistically are we dealing with a country where the administrative and language of business is English, and That's then right. you have a patchwork of tribal languages throughout the uh, landscape? That's exactly right. Um, I believe there's 74 tribal languages, but uh, English is very widely spoken, and, and actually a very high level of English is spoken in, in Zambia. Um, not like some of the pidgin English that you find in in West Africa, for example, you can you really you can hear the Queen's English, or remnants of it in in the way Zambians speak English. Well, already I'm fascinated uh, by the story of the country and uh, and everything that you just described to me. Now let's talk a little bit about the Zambian Soap Company. Yeah. How did it get started, and what has your involvement in the company been? Well, it started really with the relationship between um, an aid organization that I that I work for and uh, some Zambian local organizations that wanted to 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 work locally in their own country with some of the poorest and most vulnerable people. Uh, so, as a co- in the course of at first, it was just sort of an education relationship where I would go over and do some training and and assistance, and I really realized that. There was a lot of opportunity in Zambia. There was just so much potential, human potential. There was so much um, very high-quality land with, uh, you know, with um, a, with a, a population living on it that really needed um, employment opportunities. And that um, put, putting these things together, there would be a number of ways to to get some traction in terms of. Uh, using sustainable agriculture uh, and uh, and um, creating a system for the people and the land to interact to produce products that would actually be able to be marketed internationally. And I realized that the only reason this wasn't happening was because there was uh, sort of a limitation on information sharing, um, on some of the skills and techniques that the local people needed, and then some access to the markets in in other countries, and some just help with marketing. Um, so we started by uh, just trying to identify some of the some of the crops that they could grow um, on a subsistence scale. I was really not interested in um, large scale agriculture, but rather um, adding cash crops to what local farmers could produce. And if you put together a cooperative of enough farmers, then you can have a quantity of product that is worthwhile to ship and market and so on. 
And so we looked at some of uh, what those crops would be uh, when we when we identified some of them. Then we were able to get started uh, and and start planting them. Um, and also we were also interested in what people were already growing and how we could help that find a, um, an international market. What impact has HIV AIDS had on Zambian society? It's it's actually been quite devastating. Uh, there's I've heard a lot of different numbers as far as how many Zambians are living with HIV and AIDS. Um, it's somewhere between 20 and 40 percent of the population, which is just an enormous number. Uh, as you can imagine, there's a lot of aid, uh, a lot of widows, a lot of orphans because of uh, HIV AIDS, and um, there's also a lot of pessimism or or sadness. I wouldn't characterize Zambians as pessimistic in general, but when the numbers are that high, it's hard, and most and many people don't know their status. There's almost a feeling of dread that you have it without knowing that you do, or whether you do or don't, and that can really be, you know, a shadow that just hangs over the, the whole country. But that said, there is a lot of hope. There's a lot more uh, education that's going on. Zambia has had one of the more successful programs in, in terms of. Um, getting antiretroviral drugs to to the population living with HIV-AIDS. But that's a very, very serious issue. And that brings up an, another dimension of what we, we do is, um, you know, as, in a, as a traditional society, uh, Zambian men are expected to provide for their family. Well, when the, if the man in the family dies, it becomes very difficult for the widow and the children of that family to to then go on and survive. Um, you know, to have opportunities to go to school, you have to be able to pay the school fees, and to do that, you have to be involved in the cash economy. So, widows will very often grow gardens and support themselves as far as their food needs, but have very few opportunities for their cash needs. Um, to buy drugs or to send their kids to school. And that's something uh, um, we've been able to address as well. What um, about the impact of war and conflict, uh, especially we know that what's happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo is just, it's just heartbreaking when you hear the stories that are coming out of that country. How has uh, that war and conflict in general affected the people in the communities where you work? Well, you know, it, it's, a, it's an interesting study because Zambia has not been directly, um, you know, has not directly experienced war uh, in its, you know, in its recent history in, in quite a long time. But the, the interesting thing is that Zambia has been impacted by wars in the neighborhood. Um, so for a, in, in a certain period, there were hundreds of thousands of Angolan refugees that have flooded across the border, um, refugees from Congo, refugees from the conflict in Zimbabwe, which are still in Zambia. And that has made life very difficult, especially for the poorest uh, of the local population, as they have to now compete for this, this very small number of very low-wage-paying very low jobs with uh, a huge population of people that are even more desperate than they are. And that's a very been a very difficult situation. 
Zambia has handled that situation pretty admirably, I would say. They've really um, tried to do the best that they could for their neighbors as well as for their own people. So that's been, I would say, an indirect factor in keeping Zambia underdeveloped, but not a direct factor. Why has your company chosen to work with organic soaps? Well, one of the things that, you know, the biggest challenge by far, if you're trying to, um, well, if you're involved in agriculture in Zambia, you basically, the local market is very limited. There's very few people that are really buying agricultural products on the local market. That's because most people are uh, subsistence farmers themselves, so they just don't have need of to, or, or cash to buy um agricultural products. Um, so we were looking for something that would be value-added. We could produce an agricultural product and add value to it so that it, it would become worthwhile. Uh, and another part of that was that uh, noticing around the world that soap, uh, pretty much all the soap that we use, it, it comes from ingredients that come from the tropics. Very, uh, very rarely is the, is the finished product produced in the tropics and so that means that there that uh, the trend is we we export raw materials away from the tropics and and then add value to them in the developed countries so i i wanted to kind of go against the grain there and see if we could add value to those products um still in zambia and provide jobs through through that means the other reason we went with soap is because transportation is the real challenge in terms of doing business in zambia it it's it's a landlocked country with a very poor uh, access to the coasts as far as road infrastructure goes, and so in order to to get your product to a market, uh, we had to uh, go in a direction that that the product would be uh, would not be perishable, the product would last, and soap is one of those things that you know. It's one of the rarities in agricultural products where you can you can put it on a shelf for months, and it actually is just as good or better because it's dried out and gotten harder uh, than it was when you first pr- produced it. So that was one of the reasons we went with soap. The, another reason was that soap is something that can be produced on a village level, on a small scale, and especially when you're talking about high-end soap, the more valuable soap in the Western market, uh, organic, natural, is the cold process soap. And that's something that's best done in small batches, um, sort of a handmade process. And so that's something that was suited to the skills that we, and resources that we had available in Zambia. So that's, that's why we went with soap. The other thing is ingredients that uh, make up soap are things that we can produce in Zambia, things like vegetable oils like uh, coconut oil or palm oil uh, and essential oils, uh, the fragrances that make up soap. Can you tell us a little bit about, just kind of briefly run down, run through the production cycle of the soap uh, through to taking it to market? Yeah, sure. So it begins in the farmer's field. And um, for some of the ingredients, there's quite a long lead time. You don't just plant a coconut and get coconut oil the next season. Uh, that's a quite a long-term process. 
but we were able to identify some standing groves of coconuts uh, that we could that that were underutilized. Where there's you only people don't really need to eat that many coconuts, but uh, so a lot of the crop goes to waste. So it begins on that level with coconuts, with um, local people going out and collecting coconuts um, from the the uh, trees that are available, then splitting them open and, and beginning to process the pulp into coconut oil. So they split open the husks, they break open the shells, scrape open, scrape out the coconut meat, uh, and then we need to dry it and then press it. And those are done on a vi- village level with uh, tools that are operated by you know human power. And then uh, let the coconut oil stand to separate out the the small particles, and clarify it, and then uh, uh, collect the the oil from the top. And then those those that oil will get collected, aggregated into barrels, and uh, moved to the site where we actually produce the soap. Um, other pro- other ingredients like uh, sunflower oil. That's an annual crop. So f- village scale farmers will, along with their maize, their corn that they grow as a food staple in an adjacent plot, they'll plant a small amount of sunflower. And depending on how skilled they are at turning that into a, a yield, they, um, they bring the raw seed to collection points where we also press it. Um, it's, uh, some of this we, we contract with other people that are already pressing vegetable oil, uh, but we've, uh, we've also started pilot projects with small-scale pressing of oil that widows can do. So widows will buy, with a microloan, they'll buy a quantity of sunflower seed, and they have a a small crank-operated press. It's an expeller press. They'll feed the seed into it, and they'll uh, extract the the, uh, sunflower oil, which they'll then sell to us. And then they're able to use the press cake from the sunflower seed to feed chickens around the house, and, and sometimes they sell it. So there now we're at the point where we have the base oils. Then we also need the essential oils. Essential oils um, we produce through distillation process. And this is one of the really fun stories or parts of the story that we didn't really plan, but it just was one of those things that it worked out to be uh, a very nice uh, synergy uh, between what we were trying to accomplish and some of the needs of the community. Uh, in in rural settings, one of the few ways that women who don't own land uh, can make money is by brewing um, basically moonshine, what they call cachaso. And so the, what the process for making cachaso is you take maize, which is the staple food crop, and you make a mash with it, and you ferment it, just like with moonshine. Uh, and then that mash, after it's fermented, gets distilled. They put it into a drum, they heat it, they collect the steam, they cool the steam down, and it drips into a, a container, and, and then they have a very concentrated alcohol. And this is illegal, for one, so it puts them somewhat in a vulnerability when it comes to the law, uh, and it's usually controlled by sort of loose gangs that um, that kind of have these women in a very vulnerable position, the ones that make the cachaso. But the interesting thing to us is that they already have the skills that you need to distill essential oils because the process of distilling alcohol and distilling essential oils is very similar. Uh, 
So we were able to make some small modifications to their equipment and uh, able to ask local farmers to produce lemongrass, for example, or other essential oil crops, uh, deliver it to these women. They will distill it. And you can take, for lemongrass as an example, it takes about 400 kilos of lemongrass grass uh, to produce one liter of lemongrass essential oil. But that one liter of essential oil produces about 10,000 bars of soap. So you have a very high um, value in one small package, one liter of essential oil. So those ladies produce that, and now they become a source of income for the whole community because they're selling essential oil onto us. That's bringing cash into their community. They're able to buy the lemongrass from the local farmers, and now they have a position of respect instead of being at the sort of the the bottom of the social ladder. Uh, so the essential oils and the and the base oils, vegetable oils, together those make up the majority of the ingredients of the soap. You add to that some herbs, some flowers, and things that we add to the soap. Uh, then we process the soap um, in large mixers, uh, making it up according to the recipe, and uh, and then uh, pour it into molds. Uh, after a day and a half, the molds get opened up and the, the bar is sliced. There's a, a large bar is sliced down into smaller bars. And then there's a bunch of jobs that are also we employ widows to do, which is labeling and packaging the soap for sale and for export. So that's the process pretty much from, from start to finish. Now, your soap is sold under a fair trade label. You, your company is a member of the Fair Trade Federation. What is the Fair Trade Federation, and what does it mean that your company is a member of this federation? The Fair Trade Federation is um, an organization which establishes guidelines for um, what constitutes fair trade. And so what, what it means is that every year we go through a process of um, they ask a lot of questions what, you know, about our supply chain, about how do we uh, decide how much people should, should be paid for their work, um, how, do we decide, how do we deal with disputes, how do we ensure a safe working environment, and things like that. Uh, and, and so they, the Fair Trade Federation um, does two things. On the one side, they, they uh, help to ensure that, that what's going on in third world countries is uh, as far as fair trade is really fair trade it, that uh, they help to to provide also resources for the fair trade uh, members um, to to determine you know what are the best practices in that arena. But the second thing that they do is they provide trust for the consumer in our, in our company so that we can put that badge Fair Trade Federation on our website uh, helps the consumer to to feel that what they're doing is actually what the what the company claims, which is that it's actually helping out third world countries, helping out vulnerable communities. Uh, and so that helps us to um, take care of our market side too. Uh, and it's, a, it's also a great organization as far as interacting with other members. Um, because we're a part of the Fair Trade Federation, we, um, we get to meet and have conversations with other Fair Trade members and can can sort of sort out some of the questions and 
and get resources uh, as far as you know answering the questions that we have about the common problems of, of doing this kind of a business. And we will link to the Fair Trade Federation's website um, on the show notes for this podcast so that people can go through and, and check that out and, and learn more about it. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, this is a pretty positive story of globalization and local development in the third world. Um, I have thought about many of the issues surrounding these concepts for a long time. And one of the things that I have felt is a tension between the need for third world producers to have broader access to markets on the one hand, uh, but on the other hand, there's also this urgent need in many countries, especially first world countries, to localize our food and our production systems. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about this tension, and how do you think we should deal with the ambiguity associated with it? You know, that's, a, that's an interesting question. It's a great question. And um, there is a tension. On the one hand, you know, it's good for us to buy locally. Uh, on the other hand, uh, and so so people often ask, well, th- isn't this sort of moving in the wrong direction, buying my soap from from Zambia, Africa? Uh, I think, on the other hand, that we have we have uh, a world that is increasingly globalized. It's not straightforward anymore. That even if you buy, um, for example, soap from a company that's that's local to you, we have a company. Um, where our headquarters is, which is in, in Colorado, uh, that makes organic soap. And so people might ask the question, why shouldn't, why should I buy from this company that's uh, producing in Zambia when I could buy my soap from a company that's producing in Colorado? The reality of the situation is that the soap that's being produced in Colorado is made with you know, 100% ingredients that come from very far away as well. And so the the question of distance is really only part of the formula. We produce uh, in a very sustainable way. I don't. Uh, we don't have a single combustion engine anywhere in our production uh, system. Of course, there's the shipping, and that is a very high, uh, highly energy intensive um, deal. But at the same time, that would be going on regardless. Um, mo- it, it would. It's just. It doesn't. Unless you sort of make your soap out of uh, vegetable oils that you can produce very locally, uh, wh- which doesn't turn out to be economically feasible for a number of reasons, you, you're always going to be importing it. And then the other thing is, even when we make uh, ing- make soap with ingredients that are locally produced, that doesn't mean that the ingredients were produced sustainably. Uh, so you could use a lot of pesticides, a lot of um, petroleum products to produce uh, here in America the same thing that you might be able to produce with a lot less uh, energy intensivity and with a lot less damaging uh, consequences somewhere else. Uh, so the reality is that we do live in a globalized world, and there are some people which are very much at the margins and at the fringes. And if you believe that getting those people involved in, um, in, in the, the economy in a more participatory way is a good thing, then um, you have to put a little um, asterisk over the buy local 
idea. Uh, are you going to, you know, is it? We also have to think about what are the what are those people going to do if they're not uh, making soap, if they're not growing products organically and, uh, and and interacting with the land in that way. What are they going to do for themselves? And if you look at the pattern of what they would be doing, it's invariably going to be copper mining, cutting down their forests and exporting the timber, and, and other extractive things that, that are very damaging in the long run. Um, so there, it's, a, it's, a ver it's a complicated formula, and that's increasingly the world that we live in. It's, it's a complicated formula. Nothing is uh, quite as simple as it seems on the surface. But I, I think there's a very strong argument for why this is the sustainable thing to do and why it is the, the right thing to do in the long run. Yeah, I think of Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. And soap obviously isn't an edible product. It is, as, as you described, a product that comes from agricultural production. Mm -hmm. So it seems that the omnivore's dilemma is at, is at play beyond just what the foods that we eat, but also the products that we use and, you know, apply to our bodies or cosmetics, what have you. Uh, all these decisions that we have to make, it's all very complex, as you said. Yeah, that's right. And that, that's, a, that's an excellent book, and, and it, is a, it is a complicated issue. Um, I think if you delve into the details of it, uh, I think ultimately um, working on a sustainable level, encouraging the right kind of direction in Africa is more than worth the, the, the price that we pay in transportation of those items. Well, uh, half an hour has gone by. We have talked for 30 minutes, and I'd like to thank you, Andre Hausney of the Zambian Co Soap Company, uh, for the work that you do. And we will also, of course, link to the soap company uh, that you represent in the show notes for this podcast so that people who are interested in purchasing this soap that is sustainably produced and fairly traded can do so, and they can take a look at your line of products and I, and I have to say I did look at that and you have some great looking soaps on there so I would encourage people to at least go check that out and if you see something you like then go ahead and purchase it because you are obviously supporting a really good cause so thank you so much for joining us and again thank you for the work that you do thank you Frank I really appreciate the opportunity that concludes this episode of the Agro Innovations podcast I'd like to thank Andy Jansky, who set this interview up. Andy is also with the Zambian Soap Company, and he contacted me many months ago to get this interview recorded. And after some time, we got back in touch, and we finally got this interview recorded. So, Andy, thanks for being patient, and also thanks for the recommendation. I think it was a good interview. This and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. So if you'd like to learn more about that, then you can go to creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. <laughs>